To ship, of course. It's time for the Ship Show, the Build Engineering, DevOps, Release Management, and Everything in Between podcast. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build Eng on Twitter, and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. Who's with me for the first 2014 edition of the Ship Show? This is Sasha at Sasha underscore D on Twitter and BraddyRedhead.com. And this is Yusuf at Build Scientist on Twitter. Uh, how's your New Year's going, folks? Pretty good. Cold. Good. Cold, yes. It has been very cold. I was, uh, I'll, I'll, we'll have to link to this in show notes. There was a map going around that had a map of the U.S and it was like cold, 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 and then California's outline was LOL, so we're kind of being it was, jerks. It was minus 18 during the day here last week. <laughs> so it's still cold because we talked about this on the last episode. Oh, it's, well, I don't know. It was 30-something today. It's pretty warm in Minnesota. That's balmy. For this time of year. That's balmy. Like, yeah. I barely need a coat. <laughs> All right. Well, for the first episode of 2014, we're going to be talking a little bit about build infrastructure maintenance. It's been surprising uh, on the Twitter sphere. We've seen a lot of people taking new jobs at the beginning of the year. Um, and we'll be talking about what are the things you look at when you have inherent a build farm and, and what are the maintenance tasks that you encounter or should be encountering when you are looking at a uh, build farm or tooling infrastructure for uh, web services type application. So we're going to look at that. Uh, in the main segment, but of course, first up, as we always do, news and views. So first up, you'd have to be under a rock if you didn't see the announcement this week about Red Hat and CentOS. Looks like CentOS. Oh, God. I know. I'm under a rock, actually. (laughs) Seriously, here's my rock. I'm under it. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we'll link to uh, the announcement and the fact in the show notes, but it looks like the CentOS project is basically going to get some support from Red Hat and kind of get folded into the Red Hat ecosystem a little bit more. There was a lot of kind of interesting commentary around this. I know Sam Kotler, who's uh, been on the show before, was actually had been working on this for the past few months, and so he said he was happy he was able to talk about it. But yeah, kind of an interesting development. Yusuf, were you under a rock? Did you see this? No, yeah, I heard about it. I heard about it. I think it's it's, it's definitely big news. And I'm kind of actually kind of wondering what's going to happen to uh, Fedora Core. Are they going to drop that, or is that going to be... No, uh, I think everything no, that's that out in front, isn't it? Yeah, what? everything everything that I've read is basically that Fedora is their, you know, forward-leaning stuff, and then, um, then that's going to stay the way that it is currently run. Those changes get folded into RHEL, because, you know, RHEL has their, their desktop product, but then they also have their server products. And then CentOS is going to kind of be maintained as... Uh, alongside it. I was actually reading an interesting commentary in GigaOM just today, actually. I'll link to it. They thought this was a bit of a cloud play in that you've got a lot of companies that maybe startups that, uh, or for licensing reasons, want to have AMIs or images in the cloud. So they're going to build CentOS images. That's just what they're going to do because you don't have to pay for that. And so they were saying that this is a way to sort of uh, legitimize their involvement in sort of the OpenStack space by basically supporting the images that you would use in OpenStack because you're not going to pay $300 uh, I think the quote was something mm-hmm. like $300 a year a machine for uh, oh my God. the these. Why would you uh, pay for that anyway? That's ridiculous. Well, it's. I mean, it's, gosh. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, so the example they gave was like banks and stuff like that are risk averse and they want all that support in that. I mean, that totally makes sense. The other thing that they noticed, which I didn't even wasn't even on my radar, that they brought up was the fact that a lot of those shops use Oracle and Oracle has cut into RHEL with their Oracle Trusted Linux, which is also a RHEL knockoff. And so they were saying that a lot of times that in the Oracle deals, Oracle Trusted Linux is used as a bargaining chip for licensing fees and stuff like that. So Use this crappy Linux that nobody's ever heard of for free? Well, it's... it's I'm confused. Why would anybody use an Oracle Linux? Because Oracle certifies that you can run Oracle's database on it. Uh-huh. That's why. Some people care about their hardware and stuff being certified, especially if you've got millions of dollars on the line. I guess. I mean, yeah. But anyway, so, <laughs> no, sorry. that's the thing. No, no, no. To your, that's exactly to your point was they were trying to basically say that there's a group of people that totally do not care about that, and we want to be able – we want to basically increase – uh, the community, the Red Hat community, to directly include those people, and I think that's actually a big part of okay. what this. this that's was about. a motivator for Red Hat. Yeah. Oh, okay. Makes sense. Makes that I mean, makes sense to me. Okay. It remains to be seen whether or not it's going to be successful. I mean, I think there's a lot of there's a for people that have done a lot of open source stuff. There's a lot of institutional memory about companies coming in saying, "Hey, we're going to embrace this project, uh, uh, Hudson," and that mm-hmm. goes bad. Again, although that was Oracle, but 
Um, so I, I think the proof will be in the pudding. But well, that'll be interesting to see. I just, I, you know, I, I work for a company that has a free product and a paid product, and people who use the free product generally aren't. A lot of them aren't convertible. Like they don't have the needs that require you to pay for something. And sure, so and that, I don't but that's, know why, that's the whole point. I, I don't though. know what motivates Red Hat to. I mean, I don't care, but I think it's it's interesting. I don't know what motivates Red Hat to actually do this to get there to get people into the community because I didn't know that Red Hat had a community. Yeah. Well, the other the article. Sorry, pointed, Sam. I love you, Sam. <laughs> well, a part of the article actually pointed out that that it's interesting because Red Hat threatened to sue CentOS repeatedly. <gasps> In the past, in the past. Right, that's and, what I thought. I mean, yeah. I didn't think there was a, a cordial relationship, so I don't know. Well, maybe this is burying the hatchet, which you know, we'll see how it goes. But uh, but that burying the hatchet is always good, good for community, good for business. They don't want to be all uh, Microsofty, is that what you're saying? Or Oracle, actually, uh -huh. probably. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Would so want we'll, that. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Okay. Next up, we have OpenSSL was hacked over the break. It looks like on uh, December 29th of last year, the homepage was defaced. I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't know about that either. Oh, I'm not yeah. paying attention these days very much. <laughs> well, you were on break. It's fine. I was. Hardcore. Yeah. So what's interesting is not so much that OpenSSL was hacked, although that's interesting. What was interesting was sort of the finger pointing that ensued after the fact. Uh, OpenSSL, the organization, accused the virtualization layer of their uh, ISP being the bug, and then... Uh, what? The, yeah, so the, so they thought that the uh, hypervisor was compromised, and that's how they got into the website. So then VMware uh -huh. did a yeah, I know v, <laughs> VMware okay. did a big blog post where they said we know of no bugs, we're helping them figure it out. And then it actually turned out that the ISP was just using one two three four five as the password on the console. <gasps> that's the problem. I I'm jesty. I don't know what the password was, but it was uh, a weak password that got guessed, and that's how they got compromised. I just find it interesting though that that OpenSSL's initial, you know, when you get hacked, my initial thoughts not oh the hypervisor was what right. caused it, and then VMware is like oh oh no you didn't. So um, there's what there's a problem in there, and I'm betting what it was is that I mean this is why engineers hate to say things in the middle of problem solving because management loves to latch onto that stuff and then carry it. They carry a torch for something that you say during problem solving, even like long after you're like no 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 that's not what I meant not well, what I've said right yeah so, yeah but so I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge you on that a little bit here because I, it's unclear who on the open SSL side made that claim but I don't know that open SSL is particularly the project is particularly management heavy it's interesting that the cryptographers went right to our site's perfect the hypervisor must be at fault now it turns out in the in at the end of the day they're statement that we were patched up to date blah 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 on the host machine side that was totally true and mm -hmm. and they weren't hacked via sort of a front door or attacking that they were actually hacked under them but that's kind of interesting to see especially you know with DigitalOcean was mentioned last year we were talking about SSH mm -hmm. host keys being reused security auditing on that that virtualization infrastructure we all care about anyway I thought the finger pointing was funny. Well, they're, they're both heavyweights. I mean, presumably, you know, if, if each other, if they're both going to point fingers at each other, then, you know, there's going to be repercussions. So. Sure. And, we'll, and, and, and the thing there is we'll get to the bottom of it, and it turns out that they did. But it was just kind of an amusing way to start 2014. Last up tonight, uh, we have actually a couple related stories. A developer of Bazaar, and if you remember, Bazaar was one of the first distributed version control systems. Uh, we have some views from one of the original Bazaar developers, seven years of hacking on a distributed version control system, and his thoughts about that. It's definitely worth a read. Uh, he talks a lot about what he thought Bazaar did correctly and incorrectly. Uh, the author is a developer named uh, Jelmer, oh, I'm going to mispronounce this, Vernoich. Anyway, we'll link to uh, his blog post, but he's got a lot of interesting thoughts about the development of a source control system and also how source control is one of those tools that is so pervasive. He talks a lot about the mistakes that were made and how Bizarre in some ways shot itself in the foot. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a good story, kind of compare contrast between Mercurial Git bizarre how they came into existence and how they did the work that they did and how that kind of played itself out. Bizarre, I think a lot of people would consider kind of a first gen along with TLA and Arch, kind of a first generation distributed version control system and Mercurial and Git were kind of the second generation. So it's just some of his thoughts are kind of interesting. You know, you're, you're kind of a nerd about version control. I do find, well, here's the thing. I find version control interesting because it is such a pervasive tool, and a lot of people like to talk about the technical merits of the tool. Man, I so don't give a crap. 
I just want a place to put my stuff. Well, but so here's the thing, though. I think a lot of times the discussions miss the fact that it's a tool that is modeling social interactions in history. Mm-hmm. And the study of, like, actual history tells you that that old adage about Victor's right history mm-hmm. and so it's just interesting there's a lot of social impacts to the this mm-hmm. very kind of core tool that's why I find it interesting and well, this but, post is full of a lot of that kind of those observations so it's worth there, there's also a lot of useful metadata that you can pull out of like I'm not arguing I'm just saying I think it's cute the way Paul is such a big nerd about uh, version control systems because I think they're really boring so uh, I think it's, it's it's neat that we all have different stuff and, and you are such a nerd about enjoying the, the intricacies of discussion about whether it's Git or Subversion or Mercurial or it, uh, get uh, whatever that online version is that you like yeah. so much. Yeah, well, that it is true that Mandy Walls and Julian Dunn know we had a, a knockdown, dragout discussion over dinner up at uh, the Chef Community Summit about that. So yes, I do enjoy talking about it. The one thing, uh, Yusuf, to the thing you were going to talk about about many data that I'll point out that I found very interesting about this article, he talks about the fact that Bazaar didn't really allow you to do rebasing. They had a different way to sort of rewrite history, but you could never destroy history. It, it just kind of re packed it as kind of a side note, so you could always see what would actually happen. And he points out that Git just basically ignored that and said, rewriting history is totally fine. And it's interesting that he, he kind of talks about that maybe one of the reasons that Git got more traction, even though the bizarre approach is actually a little safer in terms of not being able to ever destroy history. So I, I, I thought that was interesting. Speaking of version control system nerdery, our last story night is a post from the Facebook engineering blog, Scaling Mercurial at Facebook. It turns out that uh, sounds like uh, Facebook is going to move from, uh, it sounds like they have a combination of subversion with uh, people using uh, Git SVN and then maybe some Git, I don't know. But uh, basically they decided that Git is not going to work for their needs, so they're using Mercurial. And uh, they have some really interesting details on uh, how they're going to get that to work at Facebook. Did you guys see this post? Mm-hmm. Sasha, you probably didn't because... You're a big nerd about version control systems. <laughs> have I told you that? Yes. <laughs> I think you yeah. Well, I think, I, I will say this. I think the thing that I find most interesting is I read this post and I thought to myself, that's really interesting, that's really cool, and nobody else on the planet should try to do it. I can think um, of one place that would, but I don't want to bring it up right now. But it would be a funny talk for later. Did they start with a G? Uh, no. <laughs> no, it's not version control at all. No, oh. it's, just an, it's just another person and company I know who considers everything that exists to be inferior and that they're going to write their own, but that nobody yeah. else should ever do that. <laughs> well, the thing I find interesting about this post is there's a couple of things. First of all, basically it relies a lot on their distributed memcache infrastructure. So it's like if you don't have a team at your company that gives 24-7 operationalized support to a memcache cluster, like don't do this because their whole kind of solution rests on, well, to get Mercurial to scale, we had to go do this whole other thing, and it, we happen to have that lying around because we use it anyway, so it's fine. But that's not the case at most places. The other thing is there's a couple paragraphs in here where they basically say, I mean, they kind of dance around the issue, which is Git doesn't scale very well, and that's a dirty secret no one likes to talk about. And the way that Git developers get you people who love Git get around it is they have tons of little teeny repositories that they then stitch together to have a do an actual build. Well, uh, what they basically say here is, well, we can't do that at Facebook. And they give a bunch of engineering justification reasons for why, which we could debate the technical merits of those. But they basically say we need to have one repository and Git won't cut it for that. So kind of interesting. If you're a version control nerd like me, you should go read these <laughs> posts. If you are not like Sasha, then you could probably You might be them. bored. <laughs> but it's still interesting. But, you know, Facebook does interesting stuff, though. So I like to read stuff that they publish just because they usually have interesting infrastructure discussions around what they're doing, regardless yes. of whether or not I give a crap about version the to- control. The actual topic, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely worth the read. Next up, we're going to be talking build system maintenance, tool infrastructure maintenance, what to pay attention to when you show up in a new gig, and maybe what you should be paying attention to if uh, you're finding your infrastructure is constantly falling apart at your current gig. Next up, Mr.
Alright, welcome back to the Ship Show. So tonight we're going to be talking about strategies for maintaining an existing build and continuous integration environment. In a lot of situations when we start somewhere new, uh, we're not doing greenfield development and so there's a, an existing build system or hopefully continuous integration environment. So we're going to talk about so how do you tackle that uh, when you are on the hook to support that. So Yusuf, this was a topic that you sort of brought up uh, and it sounds like something you may have had experience with in the past. Uh, certainly I know I have. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've, I've definitely been in um, a number of situations where you walk into a company or a new job or um, you inherit um, a new kind of continuous integration or build environment where you're using some specific uh, continuous integration software or you've got some old hardware and you kind of have to rein um, everything in. So, yeah, definitely a lot, of, a lot of questions to sort of ask. And I think one of the big things that I'm kind of curious about is running your build environment, especially now that we have the cloud and a lot of these PaaS platform as a service offerings for like Jenkins or Travis CI, whether, you know, running it in the cloud or running it on your own hardware is, you know, more sort of optimal or, or, or better to do. I kind of come from the perspective that um, if you're running it in the cloud, you know, compute time is expensive. So just depends on what, what it is that you're building or putting together. So, you know, it's interesting, the two examples that you gave, Travis CI, CloudBees, when I've looked at them, what I've noticed is that they are solving for a very sort of specific problem. So at least the way that I look, you know, when I looked into them, they would not have worked for the product that I was being required to support. So what I mean by that is CloudBees is very specific to Java. You have a Java app, and it's hopefully a Java web app because they do, like, automatic deployment to to some other cloud provider. Travis CI, when I saw it, I saw a lot of projects tested, uh, a lot of GitHub projects using it, but they were all like uh, Python modules or REST API services that were being tested and things like that. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with targeting that specific type of product, but it is different than, for instance, I am compiling a, something that it, it results in a, a installer or is a native binary that you know you actually package and ship to, to people, which I, I think it's easy to say, well, ship all that stuff to the cloud, but there are still lots of companies that have to deal with that problem, and, and I'm not seeing a good treatment of that. It's funny that this issue came up because there was just a discussion uh, with a colleague about th this particular topic, and they actually threw everything into AWS, and they found out that the performance was horrible, and the developers started complaining about the build times being horrible because there's a lot of I.O., uh, yep. for, for builds, and AWS doesn't handle that particularly well. And what I found interesting was the response was... That's not true. Well, there's story after story about how EBS... Uh, I mean, they're, they're trying to solve it by adding provisioned IOPS to your EBS volumes, but every, every post-mortem that I've seen of a service on Amazon that blew up was because they were relying on EBS, or they, were put, they put MySQL on EBS, and you can't do that. I mean, that, that caused them problems. So I can tell you that, I mean, maybe, maybe I, I, I see the uh, Amazon email saying that they're addressing this problem. I, I think that they know is a problem. But if you're talking about even virtualized in your own data center, I have, well, I was going to say anecdotal data, but it's actually not anecdotal. It's, it's data that shows that if you're running like ESX and a set of Jenkins machines versus Amazon, Amazon's slower. We had similar problems with Amazon acting up, but... We were pretty miserly with the boxes we were using too. So I mean, if you, it depends on how much you want to spend, right? Right. Well, and that's one of those things. I mean, th th this whole thing about uh, in general, like whatever as a service part of. I mean, Microsoft has been trying to push everyone to you go to a service model for years because it's recurring revenue. Whereas you may spend twenty thousand dollars on decent server hardware, but then you're done. Oh least. well, I, I would argue with that just because I can tell you that the team that I was on that managed the Jenkins infrastructure, we were also a recurring expense. How so? We got paid every month to do that stuff, so we may not be a capital expenditure. I'm not actually sure how that all works out. But you either pay for the SaaS or you pay for the people. I mean, it's the same thing with OpenStack and VMware, right? OpenStack uh, is free, but... Uh... Yeah, well, so so that's actually a really good point because the question that we started with is strategies for maintaining an existing build environment. And I hear people say that a lot, but I, I've done this repeatedly now where we'll set up a build pipeline for a client and that will last them nine to 12 months. I mean, I, I remember one of the last jobs that I actually was a full-time job, I left and the VMware infrastructure ran for six months without anybody touching it. And in fact, when they had to bring it back up, 
it was because they moved colos. So yeah. I don't buy this assertion that that you, you need to a lot of money for VMware to be stable. Right, but but also and, and also I think it requires a mindset of the tools teams and support teams and build teams that you have to build a stable infrastructure, not hey just throw it into Jenkins or throw Jenkins on this machine that's sitting under somebody's desk. And it takes an argument to make that point usually because I, I agree with you, Sasha. I think that there is a mental model of well we're going to hire people and then we can that they're going to be on the hook for for doing it, but it doesn't have to be that way. Well, I think with Paul, I think it's interesting you mentioned that the whole bit about. You know, um, throwing the whole Jenkins or whatever CI instance under under the desk. Um, I think, at least from what I've seen, a lot of people have been viewing these PaaS offerings, mm-hmm. um, like CloudBees and Travis CI, as exactly that. Oh, I don't have to hire a build engineer or a build master or whatever to to come in and maintain this. I'm just going to put my stuff up on GitHub or whatever, and then throw it on the like a private offering of Travis CI or CloudBees, and it's just going to magically work. I, the, the build, and, and this isn't me uh, ragging on Travis CI or CloudBees. I think they're both great services. I think it's just the idea that, like with anything out there on the cloud, you, you can't just set it and forget it. Yeah, and you know what's interesting to me is that in my experience, all of those, I agree, this, the services are fine, and I don't mean to poo-poo them at all, but I think it's all about, and a lot of the, you know, I, I work with startups a lot of the times, and the reason I get called is because Somebody did that. They threw it up into the cloud, and it, it, it the organization got to a point of 40 engineers or 60 engineers or 80 engineers or whatever, where then they needed to redesign the pipeline. In fact, I had a blog post just about this, about rebuilding the pipeline. It was talking about the FAA and NextGen and airspace over New York. But the point is, is they were talking about efficiency and, and redesigning the pipeline. Their build with, well, in that case, the plane pipeline, but in our case, the build pipeline for increased sort of efficiency. I mean, one of the, you know, to your point, uh, Yusuf, one of the things that always surprises me is people want things like they want to do git push hooks so that you can like check style rules and things like that. That's a pretty common use case. You can't do that with GitHub. Everything there is post push. So that's just one example. But there are tons of examples where at some level, a service provider is not going to let you run a random shell script on their infrastructure, right? Because they, they, they sure. you know. So at some point, you run into that sort of uh, limitation. And then some, some orgs just decide, well, it's, let's not do any style coverage or any of that kind of pre-commit stuff. And they just try to mop it up on the other end. One thing I wanted to bring up and ask, because you were talking about, again, maintaining an existing build uh, environment. I wanted to ask all of you, uh, what has been your experience when you get hired and you come into a build environment that is already existing? Um, maybe it's been there for a few years or 10 years. I've had that experience where it's been there for 10 years. Um, how do you tackle that? Depends on what it is. A couple of times in the past, before Hudson was around, really, people would cobble together whatever. And I remember clearly in those days getting hired playing with, I don't know how many tens of thousands of like Pearl or Bash or whatever, and then replacing all with Cruise Control, I think it was, back in the day. And then even even more recently, coming into a shop uh, who was using Bamboo, and they were cranking out CD images every night, even if there were no changes to the code base. And then slowly replacing some of the CI tools with things like Jenkins, I guess, at this point. So that's been my experience. Um, I guess just subbing out what, what's there for Jenkins. Mm-hmm. Are you coming into, are you talking about coming into a team where they just tell you to take it over and do whatever you want with it? Because I don't, I'm not a build engineer, but certainly come into teams where there's existing infrastructure and I don't just go start going through and changing stuff because that doesn't make me any friends. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've been in both situations uh, and I've actually seen this pattern repeated numerous times, both actually with managers and with engineers where somebody gets hired and it's so it seems like there's a I have to prove myself in the first month so I'm going to rip everything out that has been working for 10 years and I've been in environments where this stuff has been around for 10 years and a lot of it is like like actually I was laughing EJ when you said gets built every night whether or not there were changes because that I don't know why that seems to be like a, a thing because I've, I've seen that problem and I fixed that well, that's problem. a baby step thing though isn't it in continuous I mean, delivery I mean, and everything else it's the idea that people don't know how to make something automatic based on code commits so they just have something that's scheduled or I've had people not want to have unexpected deployments to places because they're they have people using environments and stuff sure no, this, sure, is, sure. This, is a, this is a case of an Alassian product that you have two choices you can have it monitor source control or you can have it build at midnight but you can never have it do both where it would kick off at midnight and say hey there's been any source control changes so then that's the that's the beginning of it for me Sasha and then 
as you go through and you look at it deeper, you see there are all these little dumb idiosyncrasies with the product. And eventually, like, hey, there's this other thing over here. And everyone's like, yeah, pretty much the world is using that. We should we should use that instead. Right. So so then, then the product gets yanked out. And I have been hired in as one of many, like, added to a team. And usually the consensus is, yeah, some engineer at some point early on in his career here commits management to pay money for this piece of crap. And we'd rather use this other thing. So yeah, you're right, EJ. Let's tear it out and replace it with something else. I very rarely like nobody's ever in disagreement with that kind of decision. Well, yeah. So Sasha, your point about that about the baby steps. Yes, I guess. I mean, that's true. But I've I've seen build systems that are ten years old and nobody figured out that that was a problem that should have been solved. Like it just never, I guess, got on anyone's radar. I don't know. It's just that's not how they did it. And and so that was you know one of the things we had to fix because it's sort of a mental model issue. It's like when you keep getting builds and the, there's no code change. It's like you know. So that's actually one of the first things. But to to your point, EJ, that is very different than what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is somebody comes in and they're like, oh yeah, bamboo is not set up right or bamboo doesn't do what we want so let's rip it out but they don't have any sense of all of the other things you were talking about which is oh this one thing relies on bamboo or the entire deploy process relies on this one thing on one person's desk or all of these sort of infrastructure things that can be very fragile and so that that actually would be something that I would caution against that you know I've seen that happen numerous times where it's kind of like this bull in a china shop syndrome where people get in and they're enthused and they're excited and that's good and they're there to fix problems and that's good and the organization wants them to fix problems and that's good but the way it plays out is it makes the situation almost worse for the first six months because they're ripping out infrastructure that, for better or worse, has been there for five years and, and working in some sense for the org. So that's one thing well, I always... I would think that with something like that, where you were trying to make major infrastructure changes, and, and so like I said, I haven't done release engineering, but I've been on infrastructure teams for years. Mm-hmm. And generally when I come into a team... There's a team already formed. It's not always the case, but there's often a team that's already formed. And you don't just go bulling around and uh, ripping stuff out and making things from scratch. You actually have to integrate into the team first and look at the backlog of work and figure out what's priority and what's not. So I don't know if it's because release engineers tend to be single points of contact to dev teams or whatever, but I have never been in that position or rarely where I would go into an area and be like, yes, let's rip it all out and change everything because that would traumatize everybody dependent on that infrastructure. Yeah. So well, and it's, it's funny. I agree with you, but I've seen it. And the, actually, Yusuf, uh, what made me think of it was you were talking about, should you do this in the cloud? And that was actually one of the things is somebody was like, oh, we're going to rip it all out and put it in the cloud. And then somebody pointed out, well, yeah, now our builds take twice as long. Thanks. And there's this kind of grumbling that's going on and it's just set it up it set up this sort of weird dynamic of someone who's like oh I'm new and I'm trying to do this thing and it's in the cloud now but they just pissed off their entire development staff because nobody was like hey let's actually look so anyway that's one thing I always think of when I go into an environment Yusuf does anything stand out for you that you think of oh yeah definitely I mean I my current role I, I walked into a situation where uh, pretty much kind of everybody was, you know, doing their own builds, and there were some people who were using Continuum, which is an Apache project, but nobody was really dependent on a particular CI system. It was more, we want some builds, just make sure that there are builds. And then, so I, in, in some ways, I was kind of fortunate in that they didn't really use an existing CI engine, whether it's Cruise Control, Bamboo, or whatever. Yeah. The organization was more concerned about the end result. It's interesting that you put that because that's, I think, a double-edged sword. But there's, I think, some value in that because because I've seen this too. I never really heard of this before uh, we started really doing the podcast. So I don't know if it's just kind of conversations that we've all had or if it's something that's changed in the industry. But I I can tell, I, you know, there are so many times people are like, well, just throw up a Jenkins instance and just like. Well, obviously, you would do Jenkins, obviously, right? And it's funny that I had never really used Jenkins before a couple years ago because I'd use other systems. So it, that sort of attitude of just use Jenkins, uh, it's fine. Other free systems? Yeah, Tinderbox. So I, I guess my, my point is that when you have devs who are doing work and they don't have a corporate budget to do stuff and they still need to do something, the answer is go find something free to implement. And so no, everybody no, no, knows no. what Jenkins is. Yeah, yeah. Well, right. The only reason I bring that up is that I think there's actually 
the organizational perspective is all we care about is the end game. We don't care how you get there. That's a recipe for technical debt. Having said that, decoupling it from Jenkins or Tinderbox or BuildBot or any of these other systems, all of those are free, by the way, Sasha, okay. um, is actually really valuable because I've seen people integrate their entire deployment release process into Jenkins or whatever, and then they get bought, and then somebody comes along and says, you know what, I'm a Bamboo user, and I want to, and they sell the Oregon using Bamboo, and then they have to rip out all the logic because it's so closely tied to Jenkins. Or the Jenkins master goes down because they didn't operationalize that service, and then suddenly the entire world explodes. Yeah, that's, so why, I, that's why you hire a, a build engineer that, that knows you know, about good build architecture and such. So. Right, exactly. Now, and I, so I think that's the, an interesting point when you're talking about this. You brought up rebuilding the build environment, uh, actually, which is sort of actually related to this. Yeah. So, I mean, I know, you know there's a lot of great tools, obviously, Chef, Puppet, what have you. But I think the complexity that I see in, in rebuilding the environment isn't so much you know getting Jenkins installed on a VM or whatever. It's more, okay, a lot of these build tools have build or job configurations. For the most part, I think a lot of people manually create them. Um, mm -hmm. Jenkins has some plugins where you can dynamically generate this stuff, but if you're manually creating jobs and you've got, like you said, you know, all your deployment logic or um, all your you know branching release type logic in the job, well, you know, rebuilding that build environment, I think, is going to be a lot more challenging. So, well, I mean, first of all, if you don't have that stuff backed up someplace really serious, then you are in serious trouble. Yep. I mean, that's the first thing. Well, yeah. so let me let me ask a couple questions about that. Do you think, uh, and this is not. Jenkins specific, but do you think tools that allow you to create jobs and make that really easy lead people down the wrong path? Because I've seen, I think we've all seen this, and I've seen it too, where people are like, I'm just going to put my batch file into the job box and click no, save. No, no, I don't, and I think that's the minimum viable product concept. It's the agile stuff where you you do what you need to do right now, and people who are more experienced, like we are, can look at something and go, I can do this right now, and I can make it better later, and the amount of technical debt that I'm incurring at this moment is reasonable. So, I mean, people can't always know that, and people aren't always going to know that, and they just have to learn. Well, yeah, yeah, but that wasn't my question. My question was, do you think Jenkins and tools like it that allow you to do that, as opposed to saying, point me at a script to run that has to be in the source control to use, and that's the job, and they didn't even give you the ability to write a batch file or a shell script. Do, do tools that say, here's a big box, fill me with a shell script in a, via a web form, do they yeah, go down the wrong path? I think that's the technical debt that you do incur, actually, because we spent a lot of time at my last place that I was at decoupling that later, because it's it's a very complicated process in general, trying to figure out what needs to be in the build tool and what should be someplace else, whether that's a script or an ant or a maven or a whatever. So I mean, I don't yeah, think so. I I, I, I gotta just sorry. Go ahead. You no, what I, what I was gonna say is that I do think that tools like that can give you a false sense of security, and, and especially the idea that oh, yeah, here I'm just gonna drop my whatever script into into the box, but you know, like Sasha said, if you're somebody that is just trying to come up with a minimal viable product, great. But the distinction is, or that needs to be made is, well, are you that person or not? And in most cases, or in some cases, organizations run into a situation where, you know, you've got a developer or whoever who's not really build engineering focus that gets the stuff set up and then, whoa, 12 months down the line when you're doing that decoupling process, you're kind of wishing, uh So, Sasha, I think I sort of disagree with that in so much as, um, I mean, your answer keeps focusing on people just trying to get the job done, and that's not my, my question, was about the tool, and sh should we address sort of the tool from a mental model and usability standpoint so that we help people, A, get the thing they need to get done done, but we don't automatically, the first option they have is here saddle your organization with technical debt, and I know okay. that all I know that all of us have done that detangling, and somebody has to pay us to do that, and it's a very painful process. So my question is: Is is there a better way? Like the tools as they exist now, are they not helping us? sort of cut as much technical debt as we can while still allowing people to get the job they need to get done. Ha, the job. I feel like, I feel like you, there's a place where something is easy to use or, or not. And so mm -hmm. I don't know that I think something can actually be easy to use and completely technical debt free or work later free because you can use Jenkins smart and you can use it less smart. And it just really depends on how much you know and how much you've been there before. And I think a lot of people in the world just learn this stuff the hard way, because that's the only way we have to learn this stuff. Well, that's not true. I mean, well, so, I mean, we could, you know, you could read best practices and and go to conferences and things. Where's the the 
Okay, so we're going to digress here because I'm going to argue with you about the best okay. practices idea. That's cool. Of, of where on the web are we going to find the golden rules for Jenkins that everybody agrees on and the ways to do things? Well, that's a good question, and maybe. And how much know. time do you spend reading the internet before you just say "fuck all this bullshit"? I got to get my job done. Well, maybe we. Well, so, so I, I think I think the Jenkins. I mean, specifically with Jenkins, the Jenkins community has a lot of outlets. Like you got the Google groups, the IRC channel, the meetups. I mean. That's a lot of internet to read to get your job done. And sometimes, how much time do you actually have to get your job done? So I'm, I'm fighting for the sure. user here. Right no, no, no. I, 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 I'm I feel like fighting we're, for the user, but... I feel Quick like question. we're trying to make the tool harder to use to constrain the user to do good things. So we're trying to help them by, by straightjacketing them. Quick right? question. So when saying you say, when you say user, who are you talking about? People, these people who uh, don't know very much about Jenkins, who want to put a script block right in the right in the in the job that you're talking about, and then uh, or whatever it is that leads to the ne the necessary detangling. I don't think you can get away from the detangling in a year, no matter who you are. Even you, Paul, and, and you, Yusuf, and you, EJ. I think all y'all are going to be detangling whatever you wrote today in a year, because that's just how it works. Okay. I, I will say this uh, about all of that, I think the, one of the biggest things, and, and this is easy to say, but it's hard to do because it does it has elements of various things and it's hard to define sometimes, is this idea of sort of operationalizing that infrastructure. And I think actually the DevOps quote-unquote movement or whatever has helped people realize that stuff's very important, like operationalizing it. But I still see instances where like an organization has 15 Jenkins, separately managed Jenkins masters, and some of it's in the cloud and some of it's local because there was no sort of like systemic and holistic look at how are we going to uh, offer these services to the developers. Um, have but those it, systemic and holistic looks. Well, that's exactly. I think that usually happens after you have the 15 instances of Jenkins and then you go back and say, "Oh, hey, we should do something about this." I think no. a lot of stuff is more yeah, organic. Well, well, that's the thing. Well, no, that, that's a cultural distinction. I mean, some people, yeah, they let it grow organically. Or you say, this team is responsible for managing Jenkins or Chef or whatever, and you need to talk to them. You can't just do whatever the hell you want to do on your own. And some cultures and organizations value screw everyone and screw integrating and let's redo everything 18 times with every person because that's just the way things are. And there are certain organizations who are like, no, certain people are responsible for certain parts of what this organization does, and you have to talk to them like real people and let them do their jobs to help you. And that's the difference, I think. But yeah, so Yusuf, uh, one of the things, you know, we were talking about sort of operationalizing infrastructure. And one of the things that you can prove to yourself and the org that you can do that is being able to rebuild your environment. So we talk a lot about, actually, I think Yusuf, you brought this up and it's been going around the, the Twitter sphere, this concept of immutable servers and this idea that you can sort of stand up infrastructure very easily over and over again. I think that's a little harder when you're talking about infrastructure that's like binary native builds with compilers and stuff like that as opposed yep. to like an Apache, Java, Circlet, whatever. But yeah, so I, I was going to ask a little bit about thoughts on rebuilding the build environment and what that can kind of tell you about uh, being able to manage it. Sure. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, if you're going to go down that route, you know, definitely use something like Jack or Puppet or whatever. But also look at whether you can dynamically generate your build jobs. Um, there's a lot of, I'm going to speak about Jenkins specifically, there's the Jenkins job DSL plugins, there's some other plugins that um, can help you do that. That also helps say, you keep from overloading your Jenkins jobs mm -hmm. as well. Right. Well, actually, one, one thing I've seen is that, too, uh, if you get to a point, you can actually write unit tests for the, the job descriptions. So developers can, can actually, I mean, back to our point about should the tool help developers, whatever the point is, is as a tools team, you can write unit tests for the jobs that developers submit so that they don't overload the system or they don't, you, you can yep. set unit tests, which is very, not only interesting, but kind of useful. Yeah, yeah. so I, I think definitely going down that route, and I, I will sort of put the, I guess, the, the warning or the caveat out there that, that it, it's difficult. I mean, it, you know, it is difficult to, to think that way. But yeah, definitely looking into dynamically generating your Jenkins or whatever bamboo job config, that, that's, that's a big, uh, that'll help towards being able to rebuild your build environment quicker. Now, whether or not you should kind of shut everything down and then maybe do like a chaos monkey approach, I, I don't know about that. Um, but. Well, so you know what's interesting is I think that if you're talking about an environment that uh, you know you've got a you've got a you know I'm thinking about this in the concept of like you're building an application on Windows right so you have Visual Studio and maybe some other tools and stuff like that I think the Chaos Monkey approach is actually really interesting and use OpenStack it's just like using Chaos Monkey. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm well, serious, well, you think I'm funny, <laughs> but I'm serious. 
but what I was going to say is that a lot of uh, times, and, and I'll be honest, Sashi, you were talking about people just trying to get the job done, like, I've done this. You set up a machine and it becomes the golden machine problem, where it's like, that's the only machine that gives the builds the way that they're needed and, and with all the requirements or whatever. So I think making the organization think about that problem by devaluing individual servers, so shooting them in the head or whatever, and maybe Chaos Monkey, you just turn them off and try to bring up infrastructure that you can then validate that the builds are the same or something like that. That's a useful exercise. That's sort of game day exercise. You know, you have to get to the point where you feel comfortable enough doing that so that you know you have a reproducible environment and then a uh, reproducible build. Using OpenStack, that's what caused us to actually get really serious about being able to rebuild all our slaves on the fly and uh, the, the master rebuilds and things. That's, that's actually trust right. anything. Yeah. But that's really awesome. I mean, that was a, force, a forcing function in a different way, but it's awesome Good that... for the devs, too. Yep, 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 yep. So one of the last issues you brought up, Yusuf, which is, is one that always comes up from time to time, archiving and managing old builds. Now, it's funny. I'd be curious how many listeners kind of are like, old builds, what are you talking about? Because uh, we're talking, like, all our code's on GitHub, and it's a web service, and there's nothing to really manage. So let's talk about that, Yusuf. Yeah, well, I mean, even if you're developing a web service, I mean, you still have previous releases of your whatever it is, your web service, your web application. So, and if you listen to Sasha, it's not a bunch of tarballs. That's right. Right. Actually, yeah. Well, my rants are actually more about system OS level system stuff, but you, they should, if they are tarballs, they should still be in an artifact repository. Yep. Yeah, that, that's a great point. I was I was actually just gonna um, mention that, but I mean, obviously, your your biggest cost is gonna be storage, and then do you know if you're not using an artifact repository, I don't care what it is, artifact Nexus, whatever, or even something like a version control system that supports storage of binaries. Uh, Some people are using R3. Yeah, which I would in, support before I would support putting your binaries in subversion. Some people are using S3 as a place to put that stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, what, what, yeah. Just use an artifact repository. But the, I guess the, the the other thing that I wanted to mention too was have a retention policy for your build artifacts. Yes. Um, that's something you can. I I don't know about Nexus, but I know in Artifactory you can set that. So. Yeah. So I, I can tell you pretty much every single job that I've ever had, and it depends on on sort of how many times the organization has run into this, but every organization I've worked with at some point in my job, either it's because the, the share filled up with space or they ran into this problem before, I've had to do build cleanup. And we go through this exercise of a retention policy, and you want to talk about yak shaving. I've had months and months of meetings with developers about well, what should we retain and what do we have space to retain and all of this kind of stuff. And it got to the point where th that particular situation just was so slow in coming to a decision and figuring out all the requirements that we ended up putting every two weeks, we put it on the team calendar that somebody would sit there with Windows at Explorer and mount the share and go through and delete builds that they thought were important. Wow. And wow. it was, yep. And <laughs> we just thought everything to like five snapshots because we had a problem with snapshot overdosing. We had somebody actually like go off the deep end with scheduled builds every X number of hours and filled up our two terabyte drive in like a couple of days. Right. And right. we were and like, no, you can have you can have five snapshots. That's it. It's, we're well, sorry you don't like that. Right, so it's funny too. You were talking about S three because I've seen that now. Is everybody's like, "Well, S three, yay! Just throw it on S 3 and it's free. <laughs> well, exactly, and it was something like. I mean, this is one of those things that nobody thinks about. It, it is so funny. It's like nobody seems to think about it until that it's bitten them, and then even still, like I said, you get into that pattern of it's like, well, you know, and this was in a, a situation where it was like. The, the tech ops team was responsible for the server shares, and we did all the math to show them it's, if you want to store all the builds that you want the devs to store, it's going to be like an exabyte of storage in two years. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, it was that kind of craziness, you know? And to, to this point, too, Yusuf, a question about what do you save? Do you just save the build artifacts? Do you save the entire build tree and environment? Do you save, what do you save? Because I, and I'll give you an example. This was an enterprise shop and, and they had a, the build environment for each build uh, was mostly C, C++ and stuff like that. But they ended up needing to save every single build tree and archive the entire thing because when they were doing debugging, they needed sometimes the object files. And they and it, it was one of those things where it's like, you're, you're gonna think to yourself, oh, well, if they had the debugging symbols, yeah, certainly save those off. But it turned out that we, we actually, I think we found, a uh, we were doing such low-level stuff with the compiler that we found a bug in the compiler that you wouldn't have known unless you actually were able to look at the object files at a very, like, low level. 
So some environments, they, people will have to do that. And then in other environments, it's like, well, just save the last five GitHub tags or whatever it is. But yeah, that's one thing that uh, I keep coming back to. Uh, and by the way, I would like to point out, I think you can use Perforce or Subversion just fine as an artifact repository. Everybody always talks no, about not, not Subversion. I, I mean, Perforce. Everything is yeah. really cranky. Yeah, don't don't do please don't do that with Subversion. Perforce so, totally. I've done not... it. I've done it with Subversion. It was fine. I will tell you where people make the mistake with Subversion is they use HTTP and HTTPS to do the binary stuff, and then they run into Apache's. They run into the HTTP layer limit problems. If you actually use the Subversion protocol, it works beautifully. I, 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 I don't think I, that underlying file system that Subversion, the Subversion team uses was designed to store binaries. Um, so that is But a, if somebody man, from the Subversion team wants to prove, prove me wrong, please do. Um, well, I have seen so, it so done. Here's, just, here's the thing, I've done it, and it worked fine. You have to know, you have to, you have to configure Subversion correctly, which I actually think you, they removed the Berkeley DB backend, so you can't make that mistake anymore. But I, I'm <laughs> telling you, it works fine. The one mm. bit of advice I'll give you if you do this is it needs to be its own repository. But And by the way, Yusuf, I actually would agree with you that Perforce is probably a better choice for stuff like that because with Perforce you can easily obliterate things and they, it yeah. actually gets deleted on the, the back end, which yeah. is useful. Yusuf went in about the artifactory bits and I've been using Nexus forever. A long time ago we used Arc. Archiva? Archiva, yeah. Some old Apache project for this. And then quickly switched to Nexus because it stayed up to date with what Maven was doing. They're both sort of Jason Van Zyl-owned operated things. Right. Yeah, it does all the same things where you can uh, you, you can say keep the last three releases and it will just automatically delete everything after that. Or you can keep the last six months of releases. You put some timestamp on it. And the same thing with the snapshots, where it'll mop it up. But uh, one of the other things I like, and I bet you Artifactory and everyone everyone does this now, is that in Maven, when you cut a release, there are all these pageantry that Maven tries to automate for you. And then one of the things that Nexus will do is if you've cut a release of 1.0-snapshot, Nexus will go back and say, oh, you have this 1.0-snapshot thing. I'm going to delete this now because you've done this release over here, and this nobody should be accessing this ever anymore. The snapshot is Done. So, yeah, I don't know, I've had a terrible luck with putting artifacts, like binary artifacts, Word doc, Excel spreadsheet, jars, all this kind of stuff, in source control, and then uh, trying to manage it that way has just always been abysmal, uh, especially, like, a lot of times people will check in, like, a log4j jar, right, and they'll strip the version number out of the jar file name, so it's just oh, log4j no. jar, oh, and then they're like, cute. we're going to upgrade this jar, and then it's like, what branches got it, and which, and you you can't really diff, and now you're going by like file size, and that's not always accurate. So it, put your stuff in one of these artifact repositories, and let that manage the GAV and libraries go in the repository, code goes in the repo. Yeah, it's like in the world they say hydration goes in the bottle, nutrition goes in your pocket. It's the same thing. Like there are these two separate places to get your business, and keep them separate. Well, so I'll be the the counterpoint on this. I've seen organizations do exactly everything you're talking about. And you're right, it's totally horrible. I've seen organizations do it fine and do it correctly with Subversion, with Perforce. The one thing I'll, I'll mention, actually, is that when we had binaries in Subversion, the only thing that could check... The reason we did it that way is because doing a build of the... So everybody always talks about it's like, oh, well, why wouldn't you just build it every time? It's because to build our product was maybe a 20-minute build, maybe 10, 15 minutes, some, somewhere there, 10 to 20 minutes. To build all of the libraries required to build our product was an eight-hour build. So saying, well, just build it every time was not an option. So we put... No. What we did is we put all of the libraries into Subversion, but the only thing that could commit to that repository was the build system, which got the version, you know, didn't do the, I'm going to strip off the version number, or I'm going to branch the jar and then try to, like, no, it was sort of automated. We basically used Subversion as sort of the backing store because it did the revision stuff correctly, I mean, easily. So, wait, so. so why put it in source control? Well, here's two questions. Number one, if you are going to add... Let's just focus on jar files. If you are going to add like a jar file to your Java project and you want to manage it through source control, do you put it in with the actual Java source or do you put it in its own repository, number one? And then number two, if you're going to do that, what's the benefit to doing that over putting it on like a highly available file share? Yeah, I don't see the benefit. Well, I can, so I can give you my answer to that where I've seen it. So, and, and you keep asking about jars, but I mean, it applies to any library. So, I mean, like, I've done it with DLLs and stuff like that. So, 
Generally, where this comes up, that I've seen it come up, is it's a jar or something that you get from some other company. So you may not even have the source for it or whatever. But it is a lot... I mean, it depends. I've seen it in its own repository. I generally like to do that for legal reasons because then you have the source code that has the company's IP over in one place and you've got binaries that people may need in another place. Usually when you set up something like Nexus or Artifactory, there's three really key repositories that it has for you. There's the snapshot repository, which is where your snapshot builds go. There's your releases repository, and that's where your releases go. And then there's typically third-party. And what you're talking about now is closed-source third-party jars, something you've purchased, something that you you have where the source is not available, and it's not widely available to the general public. And this is typically where you tuck these things is inside this repository, not in source control. Again, I I keep bringing up jars because I live in a Java world, so... Right. Well, and so that's the thing. I mean, I'll, I'll I'll be honest. I hear this. I hear this a lot. Never check binaries into source control. And to that, I just say, well, I'm glad you're living in a fantasy world where you can't ever do that. But there are cases where it is totally fine to do it. Usually, people that are saying that are using Git, and they're like, well, Git gets slow if you do that. And it's like, well, yeah, that's a Git problem, not a don't check things into source control problem. Well, I find it really interesting, this Paul, that you are really forgiving that this particular thing that we don't like people to do, but you're not of like the other thing that we were talking about tonight, which is doing bad things in Jenkins that we have to unravel later. And yet, people are checking things willy-nilly into checking binaries into source repositories. Ah, so there's the, there's the difference. The difference there is that every sort of common complaint that people have about doing that, it's kind of like saying we shouldn't ever, I was going to use a car analogy, I was going to say, like, we should never put babies in cars because you could crash into them if you're a reckless driver. It's like, well, it is a blanket statement that you shouldn't put your artifacts in source control. It, it is as valid as any blanket statement is. I mean, there are certain requirements where it's fine, and in all of the examples where I've done that, it's not like, hey, developers just free reign check stuff in. And I've been in environments where I've actually had consulting gigs that are actually just clean up that mess that got made. So I, I'm not saying that you can just do that or that you should do it or you should allow it. But I'm saying there are cases where if you actually go and do the work. And when I looked at Nexus and Artifactory, they're very, very tied to Java stuff. If you're not doing Java stuff, it doesn't. Well, a lot of the features don't help you at all or don't fit in the world that you're working in. And so EJ, I certainly can respect that, that if you're using Maven, then obviously you would use Nexus and you might use Artifactory because all that stuff sort of is t- tied together and works together. I'm talking about situations where you don't have that. So you asked two questions. You said own repository, and then what was the other one? And then if you were going to put your jar file in a separate repository, what's the benefit to doing that over a uh, backed up, highly available file? Oh, yeah, yes. I've seen two things. So first of all, if you have multi-platform environments, then, I mean, it's not so bad. It used to be worse than it is. But getting, like, SIFS sharing working on Macs can be annoying. Uh, On Linux can also be somewhat annoying. So having a file share, well, then you have this, like, well, is it... Windows, is it HTTP? Like, what is it? And then the other problem that I've seen with that is, well, there's two problems. The access control stuff, so can everybody just throw p- things on that share? Because I've seen the problem where it's like the developer instructions for setting up your development environment. Go to this share and download this thing. Well, there's 18 copies and 18 different versions of that thing, and the doc- nobody ever updates the documentation to say which one it is. So basically, if you have a share, t- depending on how you manage it, it tends to turn into a dumping ground. That, that is a, a tangled mess. And I, I've seen that a few times. Maybe if you are being more careful or managing that more directly, you might not run into that problem. The other thing I would say, too, is everybody is going to have a source control client that's running on their operating system. So if you're using Perforce for everything, then distributing certain binaries that you don't want people to build or certain third-party binaries or whatever, they already have Perforce. It's super simple for them to do sync and blah, 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 and get that stuff as opposed to figuring out, well, if it's share or if it's Nexus, like how do I have to get these other things? Although, like I said, if you're using something like Maven and all of that stuff's built in for you, then yeah, that makes sense. Totally makes sense you would do it that way. But my experience has been with cross-platform C, C++ stuff. So a lot of those tools aren't available and a lot of those frameworks aren't available. 
So yeah, I think that was a, a really uh, lively discussion. It's kind of funny. We, we all kind of hit on some, I think, pain points and buttons that we've all had in all of our careers. I love conversations like that because, hey, at least there's something we, we are passionate about. Uh, and I'm actually uh, open this up to the audience. I'm curious, what strategies have you run into that work and don't work patterns and anti-patterns for maintaining a continuous and integration environment when you arrive at a new gig or new job? Uh, you can tweet us at uh, Ship Show Podcast. Love to hear that. Maybe we'll talk about it on DevOps Dear Abby or, or cover this again. Of course, we end up talking about uh, CI and CD environments from time to time, so I'm sure we'll talk about this stuff again. We'll be back in a moment here on the show. All right, welcome back to the Chip Show. So for our first end segment of 2014, we're going to do a tooltip. Um, we thought we'd actually do kind of a mega tooltip of tooltips. Uh, we saw in the Twitter sphere, Scott Hanselman has been basically doing uh, a developer and power users tool list for Windows for a number of years. He has been doing it since 2003, actually, and been updating it pretty much every other year since then. And uh, I thought it would be interesting to look at some of the tools on this list, mostly because uh, I did a blog post about checksum and hash algorithms a couple days ago this last week. And uh, Stephen Murawski, I, I was complaining that Windows does not have any like SHA-1 sum or MD5 sum. And of course, Stephen jumped in and corrected me. And I actually appreciated that. So I thought some of our, our um, listeners that are uh, in Windows users and, and supporting Windows infrastructures might uh, like a list of awesome tools. And it turns out you should go take a look at this list because some of these tools actually have ports to Linux and Mac and they're useful on other platforms. One of those that comes to mind is Flux, which I've actually heard about before, but it's good to get the reminder. And basically it's a tool that uh, changes the color tones of your monitor as the day goes on, so it reduces eye strain. I thought that one was interesting. Uh, Yusuf, you had mentioned this. Um, when you were looking at the list, uh, Chocolatey, which uh, I had just recently heard about myself, but basically it's an apt get alike for Windows, which seems kind of awesome. Yeah, yeah, it seems like a kind of a cool. Uh, kind of reminds me of like a like a homebrew for Windows, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah and then, I look at that. Yeah, I, I actually use a Windows desktop at home. I mean, I use one for gaming, and I use it for like other things sometimes. I still use Macs for work and, and programming and travel and stuff, but I have a Windows desktop, and it's important to me. The gaming. I use yeah. some of the stuff on here. I mean, he's got 7-Zip on here, and I use that all the time on oh, Windows seven, for yep. everything. Well, That's huge, also... and like PS Tools, I use that. There's all kinds of Windows extensions in here and Synergy. Yeah, Box Starter is basically something that I and I hadn't heard about that that you can use to create complete Windows environments using Chocolatey. So that looks cool. The other mm -hmm. one I noticed was Gao Gao GNU Gao GNU on Windows. So basically, it's 130 useful command line utilities recompiled as native Win32 binaries. So you don't have to have oh. the Sigwin DLL mess, and it's also oh, not, nice. you don't have the MSYS. I hate Sigwin so much these days, and I really shouldn't say that because it was so great. At one well, time, but I so hate I've, it so much. I, I switched to MSYS, but it still has some of the weird, like, MSYS DLL. Everything still links against that weird MSYS DLL. So you still, I've had some problems with it. I, it's better than Sigwin, but I'm going to try this out next time I need those tools. Because, like, if you need grep, that's all standard C. Like, if it's a solvable problem. I was looking at some of these. What are some of these other? Oh, some of these are funny. Paint.net. So basically, it's Microsoft Paint, but written in .net. <laughs> So if you still like need to do your little meme pictures, you can because uh, I guess Microsoft stopped shipping paint. <laughs> so oh really? Yeah, I guess that's what it says. And then there's also some. Uh, I mean, obviously PowerShell uh, is on there. There's some Git uh, Git Web Essentials for Visual Studio. Some you know if you're using Visual Studio, there's like they, he talks about some of the options for Git plugins and stuff like that. Uh, I saw um, one that was pretty neat. Problem. Uh, what is this? Problem Steps Recorder, and apparently it comes built in with Windows Seven and Eight. Yeah, uh, you can record, you know, get your users to record and report bugs, which in um, separate steps. So that's kind of kind of cool. It's so probably my favorite one that I just skimming through was, uh, and it's not new on the list. I guess it's it's he found it before. But Siren of Shame, the description is: if you've got a continuous integration server set up, you really need a way to guilt people that break the build. You need a Siren of Shame. So, <laughs> so yeah, if you're a Windows user or using Windows on your gaming rig or whatever, check this out. There's all sorts of. I mean, I keep it, there's I I haven't even a lot of stuff in here. 
Yeah, it's got Chrome add-ons, tools for bloggers and those who read blogs, uh, websites and bookmarklets, low-level utilities. These are just the... Uh, yeah, there's some video tools and stuff like that, too, yeah, and they've got a torrent that they like, a torrenter that's not bro- BitTorrent. Yeah, broad categories. Things Windows forgot. I didn't even get... Wow. Anyway. Where's that? That's, at the, that's the thing. At the bottom, all the way at the bottom is the last category. So, yes, go take a look at this long list. Look for tools that bulk rename utility. PS tools from sysinternals. Oh, you mentioned that music. <gasps> Is that a sound switcher? Oh, God. Which? Oh, yeah, that would be nice. But oh, I have some software for that now, but that would have been nice at some point. I'm looking in the things Windows forgot. Oh, yeah. Uh, TrueScript, yep, I've used that. Yep. Uh, BearGrep. The thing that I miss most on Windows, I swear, the one thing, if I could have anything at all, is a grep. Well, there's like three options on here. Yeah, there are. So anyway, go take a look at that if you have to use Windows in your day job, supporting Windows, or on your gaming rig. Check it out. So we've got a bunch of conferences. We were out of the conference season, but now we're starting to get back into it again. So we will post links to those. I know that some of the call for papers are Oh, God. Uh, I have to write some somethings. Yeah, they're coming up. They're closing, uh, I think, this week. So we'll <gasps> post those, uh, put them on the list. Um, I mean, yeah. gosh. <laughs> so, from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed wishing you a, a bit of a belated Happy New Year and signing off. And this is Yusuf from San Diego, also wishing you a Happy New Year signing off. Uh, this is Sasha from Minneapolis, wishing you a stay warm time and uh, Happy New Year signing off. And we will see you all in a couple of weeks.